Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. Today, my guest is Mr. Brian Blue, a retired Chief Blue. We're sitting here in Los Angeles Air Force Base Public Affairs Recording Studio, and it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining me. Brian Blue has been the Community Support Coordinator for Los Angeles Air Force Base, California, since 2013. He has many roles, and he serves as the Installation Resilience Education Program Manager, Executive Director of the Community Action Board, also known as CAB, Chair of the Community Action Team, also known as CAT, Community Partnership Lead and Employee Assistance Program Manager. He is a certified sexual assault, suicide prevention trainer, master resilience trainer, unconscious bias awareness trainer, and prevention and relationship enhancement program instructor. Thank you so much for joining me today, Brian. It's really a pleasure. I've been thinking about interviewing you for a while, and I think you have so much to share, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Before I go on, you've served for 30 years on active duty. You have served on 14 installations. You have been a first sergeant for 17 commanders. You deployed. You retired after 30 years of honorable service. You could have chosen to do anything, but you started a second career in helping people here on base. Why this choice? This is what I like to do. I mean, I like to see people happy. I like to see people fulfilled and using the resources that they have. A lot of times in the job that I had before as a first sergeant, people didn't know what was out there. In fact, I didn't know a lot of the resources or I was afraid to ask for help. I thought I had to do things myself. And now I have the opportunity to tell people, this is what you have available to help you and your family get through tough times, difficult times in every aspect of their life, not just mental health, but also their financial health, their physical health, physical fitness, and anything else that they need to keep them fit and ready to accomplish the mission, whatever that mission is. You said when you served, you found yourself in situations maybe you didn't know there was help or how to get the most appropriate help. What did you do in those circumstances? I survived. (laughs) I survived a little better if I had used some of the services that were available. I was always afraid or embarrassed to ask for help when I didn't have something or if I was broke. You know, young enlisted person, especially, you know, being married when my wife wasn't working at the time, it was difficult to get through financially. So. I didn't ask for help financially. I never did take anything from the military where I probably should have. But again, it was because I was embarrassed to do that. I came from a family that had the attitude that you did things for yourself. You know, you survived, you made it on your own. You didn't ask for help. So I don't have that same attitude anymore. I have the means now, but uh, Mm -hmm. if I could go back and tell myself something, I would say, ask for the help, get the help. 
because it takes a lot of the stress off of you when you go to work where you don't have to worry about what's going on outside of work. Mm -hmm. We usually had debt, and that was, again, that's one of the stressors that I think probably most people have is having that debt and having to worry about, you know, paying Mm -hmm. it back. So we dug ourselves out as much as we could and just survived. And again, I keep saying surviving. We made it, but I think we could have made it a little bit better if we'd asked for help. Right. You could have thrived. I could have thrived, yes. Right. If you ask for help, maybe. In the past year, you have been providing electronic or email tips through General Thompson's emails to the beneficiaries of the population of Los Angeles Air Force Base. How do you find an inspiration for those tips? And it's a weekly resilience slash growth advice to all beneficiaries of Los Angeles Air Force Base. How do you find an inspiration and do you follow your own advice? As I go through life, whatever I do during the week, if something comes up and I say, you know what, this would be a good subject for one of the tips of the week. Then what I do is I think about what that subject was, whether it was physical fitness, you know, trying to get through a bike ride, you know, because you know, I like to ride my bicycle. But I think about what is a challenge during that week. And then I go back and I read about it, or I'll think back on something that happened in my life before that has gotten me through and has made me successful. And what I also try to do is I try to back it up with some peer-reviewed studies that prove my point or my assertions. And again, it's all the subjects that I see during the week or that I've thought about that I wanted to talk about that I want to pass on some tips to people. Maybe it'll help them. And I don't always <laughs> take my advice because sometimes I just get lazy and yeah. you know, I just keep going and moving on. But everything that I've written, I've used the advice that I've given in the past. I don't always use it, but I, mm-hmm. I have used it in the past. What's your favorite advice? My favorite advice is don't be stubborn about things. If you need the help, get the help. Don't be hard-headed like I've been you know, pretty much my entire life. I still am. But if you need the help, get it, no matter what it is. As a military training instructor, when I was first coming up in that career field, I didn't ask for help, and I should have. And I realized over a couple of years that I was on the street, when I say street, pushing flights. Mm-hmm. But when I was doing that, I didn't ask for help because I thought it was a sign of weakness. But it wasn't just me that was suffering or not doing as well as I could, but it was also my trainees that could have gotten a better training experience mm-hmm. had I known a little bit more and been, you know, on the other side of the power curve, but I wasn't because I was stubborn and because I was hard headed. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask for help. So don't be stubborn. Ask for help is your favorite advice. And you said you don't always follow it because right. you're human. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I am human. And, and I still fall back on the things that I learned when I was a kid where, you know, you did for yourself, period. You know, you didn't ask for help. You pushed through. I don't think that's terrible advice because it makes you resilient and it challenges you. But when it gets to the point where you just don't have the resources mentally, physically, or otherwise, you need to ask for the help. You need to recognize that, hey, you know what? I'm just not able to push through anymore. You know, it's a perfect example in the Olympics right now, Mm. Simone Biles. She realized that a very, very dangerous sport that she was in, she didn't have the emotional ability Mm. to perform a very dangerous movement Mm. on the vault. So she made the decision, which was the right decision, because she has so much on her shoulders that she was not able to, number one, perform safely, and number two, perform so that her team would be able to excel, and they did win the silver medal. So if you look at it in that capacity, 
is your team suffering? Are you suffering? Are you going to be successful if you just continue to push through? Or do you need that help? Do you need that assistance to get through and perform the mission? And then when you do ask for help, how do other people view you, right? Because I read an interesting post today on Facebook from one of my colleagues. He's a mental health provider, and he wrote a very long message to everybody saying that he has been overwhelmed. He has been seeing a lot of patients, you know, double that's required of him and has been reinforced for doing the double saying, hey, if you can do this, what else can you do? And all of this has been at expense of his own well-being and health. And he said he just decided to take a day off, which he's never done before, because it's almost impossible for a mental health provider to take a day off unplanned. You know, we have patients and so we'd have to cancel and move schedules around. It's almost impossible. So he said, He's done that, and he was reflecting on Simone and what she's done. And he wrote, the saddest thing that she said was, I hope America still loves us, or something like that. And it is reflective of a culture that doesn't want to see the weakness, doesn't want to see people take a knee. And so that kind of goes back to my point. If you do ask for help, or if you do take a knee, how do other people view you? And do they view you as somehow a liability rather than an asset? And that does happen. As a matter of fact, one of the pundits on one of the news channels was making fun of a tennis player for bowing out. Of, I think it was the U.S. Open. But saying that, you know, she did it for whatever reason, but there's always going to be the doubters. There will always be the people that look at you a certain way because they consider you a failure when you either quit something or you stop doing something for your own well-being. So, in these situations, my advice to most people would be, what's the value added in continuing something that you know is going to hurt you or hurt your team, your family, and your comrades? So the other part of that is, what are you doing as a wingman to recognize that somebody is going through a tough time? Hmm. What are you doing to help them out? What are you doing to get them to the resources that they need? Right. And even if you say out loud, sure, take a break, sure, take leave, do you unconsciously believe that somehow they're less of a performer, less of an airman, less of a human being. And I think that's a hard one, right. especially in the military culture. Right. And there are people that, you know, just, <laughs> i put it this way, they're, they're lazy. There are lazy people out there, but you always recognize the ones that are 100% all the time. They're on top of their game. They're those go-getters. And when you see that they're not performing as well as they usually are, that's a flag right there that you should notice that something is wrong. Mm-hmm. And then you got to ask them. you got to talk to them. Most of the articles that I've written, I talk about communication and it's got to go both ways. Hmm. So in this case, you've got to communicate when you see somebody and you have that mindset that you're talking about, you know, you judge that person for not doing something. You've got to think about what's the value added in this case too, with not getting that person to help or giving them a break hmm. and pushing them. And when I say pushing them, urging them to get a break and take a break, because a lot of times people won't do it hmm. because they've got that belief that you're going to be looking down on them. You strike me as a very driven person. You had a you know, full career, 30 years, you retired, then you could have not worked probably if you've chosen to. But here you are kind of finishing up your second career, getting ready to retire here in a couple of years. Not that I'm jealous. And you do not stop. Where does this drive come from for you? I like doing things that challenge me. I had a friend whose great-grandmother... She was 97 years old, and she was still in her yard doing yard work. She still drove a car. I saw her lifting large objects, and I said, you know, what's your secret? Hmm. She said, keep moving. 
just keep moving. And that's what I like to do is I got to keep moving. I see some of my friends and my peers who retired at the same time that I did, and they're really sick right now. A couple of them died pretty early. And it was all things that were related to being in a sedentary lifestyle and poor health, not eating a good diet and things like that. So I just got to keep moving. And plus, I get bored really easily. That's probably why I've had four AFSCs or four careers in the Air Force. I always wanted to do something different. And this job affords me the opportunity to do a lot of different things. So I like to do different things. I like to do things that challenge me. Again, the key is that I don't like being bored. I can't even sit still in a movie theater for two hours. <laughs> were you like one of those kids who were really bored in school? Couldn't sit still? Yeah, I couldn't sit still. I still can't. So yeah. it's, it's hard for me right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always looking for the next adventure. Yeah. And so it served you well, but, but also sitting still can be very helpful. What was it like for you to always want to move? Well, as a military training instructor, you got to stand at attention for a long yeah. time. So you can just imagine. Always wanted to move, you know, it was my parents, my teachers, you know, I was always fiddling or doing something and standing up and moving around. So I think if, you know, back in those days had they had, you know, the medications they do for kids nowadays, I probably would have been on one hmm. to my detriment, I believe. But it drives me, it keeps me moving. I want to keep doing something. I want to always give back because all the things that I was given, you know, in my life by the people that I love and the people that I respect and look up to. I want to get back. So I really do believe in that paying it forward concept. The desire to move constantly and kind of an ability to sit still, though, I think is different from internal drive to do well. I do think they're different. My drive to excel, my drive to do better is not for any kind of adulation or reward for me. I want to do things better, you know, the people that I serve. And when I say the people that I serve, this also my family, not just yeah. the people on the base. But I always want to do better and help people out. Nothing makes me feel better than to see somebody happy. I mean, that's what I like. Where does it come from for you? I think my grandmother, my mother, my father, everybody in my family, there were people that always gave. My mother was an activist. My grandmother was an activist in the community, you know, always doing things to better their neighborhood and make parks more safe for kids. And my mother, as a matter of fact, she was a chair of the Citizens Advisory Planning Committee in Tucson, Arizona, made recommendations to the mayor and council. So she did a lot, and I saw a lot that my grandmother did as well in her community, always giving, always doing things for people that were less fortunate. So I got that from my two heroes, my grandmother and my mom. Yeah. Hardest working people. As a matter of fact, my grandmother, <laughs> she had one lung, she had rheumatoid arthritis, she had cataracts, she had unbelievable stories in her life and she kept moving kept going kept giving until hmm. the day that she died yeah what about your dad my dad was the same way he was a very low-key quiet person but if anybody asked him to do something my dad would do it for him, hmm. you know if he had the means i think many people know you as an avid cyclist because you cycle to work and people see you cycling to work but also you teach boxing classes and again that kind of reflects back on what you're just describing, giving back to the community. Obviously, you boxed yourself and also you were a rugby player. Why these sports and what do you identify with most? When I was younger, in high school, I couldn't play football or wrestle or any of the contact sports because my mother wouldn't sign the paper. She didn't want me to get hurt. So as soon as I turned 18, I started boxing. I boxed a little bit when I was a kid. 
because I snuck off to the gym and then my parents found out about that. And I already had a fight lined up and they let me fight. But as I got older... Wait, so you had a fight lined up before you trained for it? Or no, you no, trained, I trained for it. In my... But you hid from them. Right. <laughs> so, How did you do that? <laughs> I, I told them I was going to the rec center. You know, it was the rec center, but it was a little bit further away. So we got on the bus, my friend Mike and I, we went to the boxing training. And then there was a fight in Eloy, Arizona, and my parents let me fight. So I had two fights when I was a little kid. How did you do? I lost both of them. <laughs> yeah. But the first one, I didn't have the right shoes, and I got disqualified because my parents couldn't afford to buy me actual boxing shoes. So I had rubber-soled track shoes like back in the 70s, and I could not walk around on the campus. Oh. So I got disqualified because I kept falling down. Tragic. <laughs> wow. So I couldn't do that. So the next fight I had, it was a decision, but it was a pretty good fight, but I lost it. But then when I got older, as soon as I turned 18, I said, I'm going to the gym. I fought, you know, won a few fights. And then I joined the Air Force, came back, wanted to go back to boxing. A friend of mine introduced me to the sport of rugby, fell in love with it. Did that for about 20 years at mm. different locations, Germany and Texas, Arizona. Do you play for the Air Force? No, but I was selected for the Air Force Select side, but I couldn't afford to go to the tournament. Like to money? Way to get that oh, wow. So, you know, I fell in love with that sport. I played it for a long time. I did Taekwondo for a few years, competed in that. I loved that as well. But I think I identify more with the team sports because I love the concept of teams. Just the fact that when you go out there, you cannot succeed without your teammates and they can't succeed without you. So you're a linchpin. You're a key part of that little organization. So I played in the scrum. I played a, I don't know if you've ever seen the sport, but I played a prop, wing forward, eight man. I played second row. And in each one of these, you have to have that position. Otherwise, the scrum is going to fail. What is scrum again? Scrum is a set play. If you pass the ball forward or you knock it forward with your hands in support of rugby, then it's called a scrum down. Matter of fact, that's where we get the term down in football because mm -hmm. American football actually came from the game of rugby. So you have a scrum down. The ball is put in between the two scrums. So there's eight people on each side pushing against each other. And if anybody in that scrum is not strong enough to stay tight enough and strong enough to push, then the whole thing fails. So, again, it's a really cool concept of being a part of a team and the weakest link. And so on. So, love the sport, great camaraderie. It was a lot of fun. And I did that for as long as I could. My knee was just shot and I just couldn't do it anymore. And now, what's your routine these days? <laughs> so, now I just cycle. I got a lot of good friends that I ride bikes with. And, you know, we push ourselves as much as we can on the weekends, try to do, you know, more and more distance and elevation, you know, climbing the mountains, which is great because you get a lot of great scenes. That's the great thing about cycling is. You also have a team concept with road cycling where, you know, you get in front and you pull. And then when you have had enough and you just can't do it anymore, then you can back off hmm. and catch the slipstream and draft behind somebody else. Yeah. Unless you have a time trial bike. Then. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to be careful with those. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, I love that sport. I like the mountain biking as well. You know, you go out with your friends, but. It's not exactly the same as team concept as it is with road racing. What's your daily routine? I usually ride to work. I have them for about a week and a half because my back is really messed up right now. But mm -hmm. usually I ride to work or on the weekends I'll ride 
the long distance on Saturday to 90 to 100 miles at about 5,000 to 6,000 feet of elevation. And then on Sundays, we do what's called the recovery ride, just to, you know, all the lactic acids and everything that are built up. So you do a little shorter ride, maybe, you know, 20, 25 miles. What's your mileage to work and back? It's about 38 miles total. Total, every day? Well, yeah. almost every day. Some days I can't. I've got to bring things into work or, yeah. or I've got a meeting off base. When I called you to interview the other day, you said two things. One was, I don't have anything to contribute. Why would you want to interview me? And, you know, I'm not like some other guests on the Blue Grid podcast. Do you still feel this way? So I thought about it. And what I was getting at is that, you know, most of the people that you've interviewed have incredible stories of survival and resilience. And I just didn't have the same story as they did. But after a while, after I thought about it, I still do feel that I have something to contribute. But I just didn't think it was as impactful as those stories. I have overcome a lot. My family has overcome quite a bit. And what I do is I usually think about putting things in perspective. So I look at my grandmother, for instance, again, who's my number one hero in my life. When she was 14 years old, she herded cattle across the Sonoran Desert during the summer. And if you've ever been to the Sonoran Desert, it's pretty hot. And halfway through the 100-mile trek with her dad and her sister, who was a year older than her, their horses were stolen. So she had to walk on foot herding cattle with a hole in her shoe. So she had to put cardboard on the inside just so she could you know, walk across the desert. So I think about people like her and everything that she went through, and I can go on and on for you know an entire day talking about what she struggled with, especially mm -hmm. during the Depression. But I think about those people, and I put everything that I've been through in perspective, and I know that I've gone through a lot, and I've survived a lot, and I've made it through. So I do have something to give back. Again, that's you know what I live for is to give back and to help people out. What's the most difficult thing that you've survived? Truly, the, the death of my mother. I mean, that was the hardest thing. Everybody in my family dies of either cancer or old age, literally. And she had metastatic breast cancer, and it you know, metastatized to her liver and to her bones. She had brain tumors. And she fought and fought and fought. So if she didn't want to die, she had a will to live that was unbelievable. So she fought cancer for, I think it was about eight years. And finally got to the point where... She was in my house, and my daughter had a recital at her school. And I was saying, Mom, I'll be right back. i got to take Isabella to the recital. And my mom could barely talk, and she was like, no, 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 no. And like, said, don't go. I'll be right back. And she kept saying no to me. Hmm. And uh, on the way to the recital, my mom passed away. Hmm. And it's the hardest thing in the world that I wasn't there for her, and she was trying to communicate that. She knew, you know, she was, she was going to die. Hmm. So that was the, the toughest part of my life. And then watching her, you know, what she went through, the suffering that she endured. And on top of all the suffering that she went through, she still had that will to live. And the happiness of her grandchildren and her children. And, you know, just the spark that she never lost, you know, up until the day she died. So that was the toughest day of my life. Mm. Yeah. How did you cope? I had my family around, so we got through it together. And interestingly, that night, I went out for a night ride on my mountain bike on a trail with, you know, a headlight on the front. And 
I rode around a trail that I loved in, in Tucson, Arizona. And it got me through that evening. And just the fact that I'd see people in my life that passed away. So I was not used to it, but it didn't hit me as hard, I think, as it could have if she was the first one to pass away. Because my dad died eight years before mm. of cancer also. But yeah, that's just the support of my family. We're pretty close to my sisters and my aunt. So going to the bike ride and being with your family. Right. The second thing you told me when I called you to ask for this interview is that, sure, you'll do it. And then you said, that's because I have a hard time saying no to things. How do you think that quality of yours, having a hard time saying no to people, impacted your life decisions? I think it got me to places where I probably would not have been had I not been the person who, you know, my peers knew that I would do things. If they asked me whether I was the last person <laughs> that was there to do something or the first person, they knew that I wouldn't let them down if I had the ability. So it got me to jobs and parts of my career that helped me excel, gave me the opportunity to meet some really cool people and do some really neat things in the Air Force, including, you know, being part of the team that built the original Warrior Week. So I got to do that, which is pretty neat. And then different opportunities to deploy to certain places and work for some pretty great commanders as well. So overall, it was a good thing that you have a hard time saying no. Yeah. It's been a good thing for the most part. <laughs> Sometimes I think I overextended myself because I just had too many other things going on. So again, you know, if I reflect back on a couple of the choices that I made, I probably shouldn't have said yes. I should have said no because it hurt other aspects of my life, meaning that I couldn't focus as much attention on that part of it that I believe that I should have. Could you give me an example? I was at a meeting for the top three, and the same thing happened at a meeting for Air Force Sergeants Association. But I walked into the meeting as a member, and they were having nominations for you know, different officer positions. And a friend of mine named Kirk Larson, he, he said, he said, I want to nominate Blue. So I'm sitting there, and I, it was a shock. And they said, do you accept? I said, yes, I accept. So I accepted it. I won the position. I became the president of the top three. And the same thing happened at a meeting for Air Force Sergeants Association. I can't remember who it was that nominated me for that. But I just didn't want to let somebody down. But at the time, I was in a unit that had a lot going on as a first sergeant. I was very busy. And I was doing a lot of work on both duties and both positions that I didn't have a whole lot of time to spend at home with my daughter and my wife. So the position of a first sergeant is already busy taking on the, you know, the mantle or the position of the president of a large top three, a large installation. Probably wasn't a great choice. What's your best trait? I accept anybody, unless they're a bad actor, you know, in other words, somebody who's going to hurt somebody or is hurting somebody. I accept anybody for what they are and who they are. And I think that we have lost a lot of that recently. And this country seems to be divided on aspects of race and ethnicity and national origin and things like that. And I think that's the craziest thing that I can imagine why people can't tolerate somebody for what they believe or who they are. You know, it's not their decision. <laughs> they didn't ask to be born a certain way. You know, why do you treat somebody poorly just because you don't like the color of their skin or who they want to love? I don't understand it. I don't get it. 
and I'll do everything I can to change people's minds if they have the opportunity. So acceptance and tolerance. You're also a vegan, and you don't drink any alcohol. Let's start with vegan. Why do you make that choice in life? I'm on a plant-based diet, and everything that I can do to fight the potential for illness and cancer, I'm going to do that because, you know, I don't smoke, I don't drink anymore, and I want to do everything that I can to eliminate anything that's going to contribute to cancer-causing agents in my body, including not eating meat or plant-based products. I am plant-based now, and that's the main reason, because I just want to stay healthy. I want to live for you know, a long time. Do people torment you all the time with questions like, do you get enough protein? <laughs> all they do. Non-stop. You know, how do you get protein? And what about me? Don't you miss it? And I do, you know, I, it's funny because I tell people the one thing that I miss more than anything is the desire to eat menudo. What is that? It's a Mexican soup, hominy and tripe. And my mother's side of the family is Mexican. So, you know, I grew up eating that and tortillas and carne de cochile and all that. But I do miss eating menudo because <laughs> it's delicious. How long you've been vegan? I think it's over two years. Okay. Oh, so fairly recent. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel a difference? I do a race every year with a group in Tucson, Arizona. Mountain bike race. It's called the 24 Hours in the Old Pueblo. But I had my best times in 10 years in that race last year. So mm. right before the pandemic in 2020, we had the race. And out of all three teams, there was only one guy who beat me in cumulative times. Mm who beat me, and he's Cat 1, Cat 2 racer. Oh, wow. So we had three teams, and we got there and race. I did better than I've ever done 10 years later. That's awesome. Good results. And you also don't drink alcohol. I know there's a story behind it, but what happened? I think every bad decision that I made or bad feeling that I've ever had is a result of drinking or drinking too much. And, you know, I just don't want to have hangovers anymore. I don't want to drink because that also, you know, I think was raising my blood pressure. And I got to the point where I was drinking more than I ever wanted to. And it was becoming the feeling where I had to drink every day. Mm. I looked forward to it. And then every event that I went to involved alcohol. So if I did something, I had to be drinking. Mm. It, or at least in my mind, I was telling myself, you know, I had to have a drink. Otherwise, it wasn't fun. And then I realized, you know, after I stopped drinking, that I really didn't need it. You know, I could replace it with other things. But I do still like the taste. That was the hardest part, because I like the taste of beer and whiskey and wine. Was there any kind of event that prompted you to stop? I think for most people, you know, they don't just sort of make the decision on a whim. Oh, maybe I'm looking forward to alcohol every night, so I probably shouldn't drink. A couple of things. When I was a first sergeant, I couldn't drink unless I passed the phone off to somebody, because I never knew when I was going to get a phone call in the middle of the night you know, to ironically go pick somebody up for DUI. And then I was drinking. So I didn't drink at night. Or if I did, it was early in the evening and I was only a couple of beers or something. So I was always afraid that I was going to have a situation where, you know, I had something to drink or I had too much to drink and I could not go and help my daughter out who was, or my girlfriend or my fiance, if they were in a situation where I had to go drive to help them out. Or just the ability to do something and then also the fact that everybody in my family on the male side, on my mom's side of the family, is either a problem drinker, had been a problem drinker, is an alcoholic, or they're abstinent. There's like no in-between. Yeah. I can see you being kind of a man of all or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
What's your biggest fear? My biggest fear is not anything physical. You know, it's not anything I'm not scared of getting hit by lightning or anything like that. My biggest fear in life is letting people down and having that feeling that I've let somebody down and I shouldn't have or I could have done something to help them out in big ways or small ways. You know, those are my biggest fears. Have you let anyone down? I think I did. I think I let my daughter down. I spent too much time focused on my job when I was active duty. They were tough jobs. They were jobs that needed me there for all hours. And I should have spent more time with my daughter. And I think back on it, I could have spent more time. I could have spent more time on the weekends. And I just didn't. So I definitely regret that. I'm trying to make up for it now. You know, she lived with me for, you know, a couple of years here in L.A. She got a job with the councilman in San Pedro. She's back in Tucson now. She got a different job. She wanted to change pace. But I got the opportunity to spend you know, a lot more time with her talking about life. I was there for her, and it felt good to do that, to be you know, around. What was your darkest, lowest, or loneliest moment? At the end of my career, it should have been the happiest time of my life. You know, I had my retirement ceremony. I had all my friends, people that I looked up to. They were there at my retirement ceremony. And just prior to that, my wife asked for a divorce. It was a couple of months. So I was going through that, the fact that I needed to get a job, you know, once I left the military to support my daughter. And she was young at the time. And so I retired, got this job here. And on my 50th birthday, I was sitting by myself. I had family that called and said happy birthday, but I was completely by myself on my 50th birthday with my two dogs, who I love very much. <laughs> And I was drinking a bottle of whiskey, mm-hmm. not the entire thing, but I was drinking. And I should have been somewhere else. I felt that I should have been somewhere else in a different place, been more successful. And I was alone. And I don't think I've ever been more lonely than at that moment. What did you do? I got up the next morning, rode my bike, and I felt better. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. And it's, and it's kind, of, kind of funny because it cleared the air. Riding along Rancho Palos along the beach and the ocean. And I just felt great. And I reflected back on all the good things that I've got in my life, the support that I have, the fact that I do have a job and, you know, I got a paycheck and I still have my health. And so, you know, I picked myself up. I did it myself. I probably should have, you know, gone to counseling back then, but I didn't. But I felt great. I felt better the next day. The mental shift for you was reflection on things to be grateful for. Right. You know, we teach a class as master resilience trainers on counting blessings. And you asked about me taking my own advice. That's the one that I really take advice uh, more than any others. You know, I think about all the good things that I have in my life. Mm. And it gets me through the day. What advice do you have for all service members who are going through difficult times right now? What I've said earlier is get help when you need it. Ask for help, whether it's with your career, folks that are going through their CDCs, their career development courses. If you're going to school, ask for a tutor if you need it. If you are suffering emotionally, get the mental health that you need. We have so many resources available. Just ask for the help. And for somebody who's a wingman, watch out for your friends. I had four different units at Davis-Monthan, which is the base that I retired from. And I had a death in each one of those units, but none of them were suicide. Mm. 
I did have about 30 saves in all those units by wingmen who reported the person in the unit that was suffering or having issues. So we had people that were exhibited some kind of suicidal ideation, and somebody was there to catch it, to report it, and to get that person to help. So we had probably about 30 saves. Those people potentially could have taken their own lives. Hmm. So watch out for your buddies. Watch out for yourself. Take care of yourself, your families, and your wingmen and your guardians. Thank you so much. This is Mr. Brian Blue for the Blue Grid Podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mail at mail.mail. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mail at mail 